Gracious God, as we center ourselves this morning, Lord, just speak to us about the place that probably speaks most to our need of healing. Maybe these are the words out of the whole pocket prayer that we need to hear hear the most. Heal me. Maybe the words are, forgive me. Maybe they are both. But Lord, whatever it is this morning, speak into our hearts in the place of most need. Allow us to hear from you through what Max has to say, what I have to say, and ultimately what you have to say. To pour into our time together now. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. The people of God said together. Amen. In every celebration of life I do, which is a funeral, but we don't call them funerals because that's not what they are, but celebration of lives, there are two scriptures I always use somewhere in the service. The first one is, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want. And, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first passage is from Psalm 23. The other is from Psalm 22. They are words of peace and pain. Sometimes they are actually across from each other in your Bible. Obviously, if you're using the YouVersion app, they wouldn't be there. But in the real Bible, when you open it up, they are sometimes right across from each other. In times of sickness, we can hear both prayers from the same heart. And in times of loss and despair, cancer, heart failure, depression, dementia, nothing bends our knees to ask for God's help more than a health crisis. Amen? That'll get you there really quick in your life or in the life of someone else. We need the Lord to shepherd us through our sickness. Many of us have cried out probably the words, Heal me. Say, Heal me. Heal me. But will he? We quietly question. Or, My God, my God, why? Is this happening? We see good, prayerful people, wheelchair-bound or disease-ridden. We see salt-of-the-earth folks who are struck down in their prime. We see evildoers who live long lives. And we wonder why. How do we explain the why and the when of God's healing is a question that many of us wrestle with and struggle with. Well, we might begin in Jericho with Jesus in Matthew 20, 29 through 34. If you're following along in the app or pulling your Bible out, that's where we're going to start in this story. The popularity of Jesus was beyond belief. At this point, he was a rock star. Three years of feeding and healing and teaching had elevated him to that. If he'd been on Facebook or Instagram, he would have had millions of likes and loves. He stood up to the authorities. He was blue-collared, big-hearted, and he was a hometown hero. Now, as they went out out of Jericho, a great multitude started following him. And the crowd was escorting him to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they chatted and they laughed and they sang happy songs. And then from off to one side... There were two blind men sitting by the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, the Son of David. 
the crowd looked at the two blind men. They were pitiful. And what did they do? Offer to help? Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. People told them to pipe down. There was this a victory march. It was a day of triumph. It was Jesus on an important mission. He didn't have time to stop and help people. He had a places he had to go. He didn't have time for this. People would have left the blind men on the side of the road. Sound familiar? Max says that afflictions can sideline the sufferers. Everyone else has a place in the parade but the person who is hurting the most. When we get sick, we get sidelined. When something happens to us and we're no longer able to be present, it's easy to become forgotten. You see, like Mary last week with the wedding wine, the blind men brought their concern to Jesus. They continued, they cried out all the more after being told to be quiet, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. They didn't ask for Peter or John. They made no request of the disciples or the followers who were following. They went straight to the top. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes would be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. You see, they cried out to Jesus persistently, personally, passionately. I need help. Heal me. That's part of the prophet prayer. They go together. Say it with me. I need help. Heal me. They go hand in hand. And here's why you do the same. Max says God's goal for you is wholeness. God's goal for you is wholeness. When Isaiah 53 foretold of the Messiah, he described him as the one who would take away both our sin and our sickness. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You see, sin and sickness are interlopers, consequence of the same rebellion, but they are cured by the same Redeemer. Amen? See, Jesus treated our sickness in the same way He treated our sin. He took it away. He bore it to Himself on the cross. When Matthew saw the large number of healings in Galilee, he remembered the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 4, the verse before that one. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's well-known sermon. He took our illnesses. He carried our diseases. Matthew eight seventeen. Did Jesus die for your sins? Yes, that was the weakest yes I've ever heard in my life. Did Jesus die for your sins? Yes. Did Jesus die for your illnesses? Yes. Yes. That's what it says. 
It's inconsistent to say that Jesus saved your soul but not your body. That Jesus does not care about your body at all but just your soul. When Jesus took our sins to the cross, He took our cancers and disfigurements and depression as well. Then why do we get sick? That's a fair question. Why do we get sick? Because this is a not yet and it is. For the same reasons we still sin. This is still a fallen world. And the kingdom is a not yet and already here thing. Sickness and sin still stalk our world. But here's the difference, Max says. Sin cannot condemn us. Disease cannot destroy us. Guilt is defanged. And death has lost its sting. That's the difference. You see, sin can become a showcase of God's grace. How many stories have you heard where someone's told of how they've been changed and where they were at and who they are now? And sickness becomes a demonstration of God's ability to heal. There isn't one without the other. So if you're sick, cry out to Jesus. Talk to Him about the physical things that affect you. Your stomach, your skin, your struggles, whatever it is. And then also talk to Jesus about your emotional hurts, abuse, abortion, abandonment. Is it done to you? You did it to someone else? If so, you're likely to need inner healing. You're not going to heal from the emotional traumas of life on your own. It's going to take healing from Him. And He will heal you instantly or gradually or ultimately. And that's where I think we begin to have our doubts in the when. When is God going to heal me? When is it going to happen? Why hasn't it happened yet? What is God waiting for? What have I done wrong? Well, He may heal you instantly. I mean, one word was enough for Him to banish demons, heal epilepsy, raise the dead. He only had to speak a word and the healing happened. This might happen to you. That's what we call miracles. That they happen that way and we have seen them and we have heard them. Maybe we felt them. Or He may heal you gradually. In the case of a blind man from Bethsaida in Mark 8, Jesus heals him in stages. He rubbed spit on the man's eye and he asked what the man saw. The man answered and then Jesus rubbed his eyes again a second time and then he was healed. So it was in stages. It was gradual. But our highest hope, however, is the ultimate healing. In heaven that God will restore our bodies to their intended splendor. When Louise and I go and visit folks in the hospital, we say basically some of the same things to those who are on their deathbed. God may heal you now, but no matter what, God will heal you ultimately. That's what we have to offer at the side of someone who appears to be near death. There is healing no matter what, whether it's in this world or in the next. Max says, God will turn your tomb into a womb out of which you will be born with a perfect body into a perfect world. Amen? 
I like that womb and out of the tomb. In the meantime, keep praying. You never stop praying for whatever it is that you're, you need to have be healed from. The first part of the prayer goes what? What's the first word of the prayer? Father. The next part is, you are good. The next part is, I need help. The next part is, heal me. If Jesus healed you instantly, then praise Him. Give all the glory to God and all the honor and all the thanks. If you're still waiting for healing, then trust Him. That healing will come. There are lots of examples of people in our lives and others who are waiting for healing. And we wonder why. And we see it all around us. We pray for healing for them, but while they wait, God is using them to inspire people like you and me. We see how they deal with their afflictions, with their troubles and their trials. And it strengthens us and it's a testimony to seeing how they live their lives. And we go, well, if they can do that, then surely I can do this. God is using them to inspire people like you and me. And God will do the same with you. God will use your struggle to change others. And God may use your struggle to change you. Amen? Aren't the words we want to hear. But it's true. Your struggle may help change someone else, but it may indeed change you and who you are. Max tells his story of asking for healing in his writing hand, and he says this. He says, so far he hasn't healed me, or has he? These days I pray more as I write. Not eloquent prayers, but honest ones. I'm not Max the author. I am Max the guy whose hand is wearing out. I want God to heal my hand. Thus far, He has used my hand to heal my heart. Those are powerful words. God has used my hand to heal my heart. Are you waiting for Jesus to heal you? Take hope from Jesus when He's with the blind men and His response. When they say, Have mercy on us, O Lord, and they cried out, what did Jesus do? It says that Jesus stood still. He stopped to be present with them. Everyone else kept going, but Jesus froze. Something caught his attention. Something interrupted his journey. What was it? What did Jesus hear? He heard a prayer. The prayer caught his attention. The conversation was opened. Something interrupted his journey. And Jesus heard the words and stopped. And he still asks to us, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Lord, heal this heart condition. Remove this arthritis. Restore my hearing. 
Jesus' heart went out to the blind men. It says he had compassion and touched their eyes. The Greek term here means he felt for them down deep in his stomach. Because that's where compassion comes from in the ancient Hebrew world. Your gut. He felt for them in the lowest part of his gut. He hurt for them. That's a strong, strong word. Jesus moved in when others had stepped away. He healed them, and He will heal us. It might be instant, or it might be gradual, but this we know for sure, Jesus will heal us ultimately. Amen? One way or another, in this world or in the next. Heal me. Say, heal me. Heal me. And the second thing is, and forgive me. Max talks about tattoo regrets, and there's some great stories in the book about all these regret people have for the kind of tattoos they got, and their misspelled ones, and don't tattoo the name of your girlfriend on yourself because that's really stupid because that may not last, and everything begins to sag later in life, so don't do that either. But he says you may not have tattoos, but we all have regrets. We do. We all have regrets about things in our life. We feel remorse over the words said or the deeds that are done. You see, guilt leaves a tattooed heart. And if your unresolved guilt manifested itself in tattoos, how marked up would you be? If people could actually see all the guilt that you feel, all the things that are broken, and they were all revealed on the outside of your body in tattoos, how marked up would you be? What image would you see in the mirror when you look? To see tattoos, you can't see most of them. You don't see them. Everybody else does. You have to look in the mirror to actually reveal what it is that's being seen. What would you look like if your regrets were marked all over you like tattoos? Would it be the face of someone you hurt? The amount of money you've wasted in life tattooed somewhere? All the could-haves and should-haves written down your arms? of the things that you were supposed to do or should have done. I could have been a better mom. I could have been a better dad. I could have spent more time across the back of your neck. I mean, dig around the basement of your soul, the place you don't like to go. You probably got a basement. Maybe you don't like to go anyway. It's kind of creepy down there. It's dark. You don't like it. It's where your laundry is maybe or all your storage. You don't want to go there unless you have to. Go down that basement of your soul and really dig around those boxes that are musty and dirty and open them up and go through that stuff you've packed away and think is so neatly tied together. The consequences of that regret can be really ugly. And most of our regret, Max says, figures under two different headings. Either it's defensiveness or defeated. To defensive souls keep their skeletons in the closet. They tell no one. They admit nothing. They seek innocence, not forgiveness. It wasn't my fault. Life is reduced to one aim. Suppress the secret. Suppress the fact that I'm broken. Suppress the fact that I have done things that I'm ashamed of. Suppress. Failures go unaddressed and untreated. Defensive souls build walls around the past. 
I'm not going to deal with any of that. I'm just going to build a wall around it and then try to move on. Defeated souls are different. On the other hand, they're defined by the past. They didn't make mistakes. They are the mistake. You see, people all the time do this. It's like, you know, I don't like you. Or, you know, we say all kinds of things to each other like, you know, you did a, you're a really horrible person. Instead of saying, maybe you did a really horrible thing or maybe you did the wrong things because people and actions are different. But we combine them together. We do it in society and, and we do it in politics and everywhere else. We attack the person, not the problem. We do it all the time. Every party, from the president all the way down, through city government, through everywhere, when we want to get our way, we will attack the person and not the problem. So instead of it being something that made a mistake, you are a mistake. And that's how they live. They don't feel foul up. They don't, they don't foul up. They are foul ups. I'm always doing something wrong. I'm just a wrong person. I'm just a horrible person. I'm a bad person. They don't hide the past. They're wearing their sleeves. Their whole past is exactly who they are. Well, that's, uh, you know... I, done all these things in the past and that's just who I am. I can never change. I can't be any different. I'm defined by my past. Is guilt having its way with you? If so, consider this promise. No matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can take it out and make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. God can take it out, whatever stain it is. God can do that. No one else can. You probably face stains in your life on carpet, on furniture. You just can't get out no matter how hard you try, no matter what miracle chemical you try to use that doesn't work. Well, God can do that. Whatever the stain is, God can take it out. Amen? God can extract every last mark from your soul. Those ugly tattoos, the one that you try to cover up later on, you watch them burn it off, which is the worst thing in the world. Oh my gosh, it's like, it's horrible. And you can still see the outline of it and everything because there's absolutely no way to really cover it up. God can take care of those tattoos of sin. When you come to God through faith in Jesus, you receive the greatest of blessings, grace for all our sins. I think we don't focus on that enough. We, we move on from that basic understanding of things, that grace is a gift, that we don't earn it, we don't deserve it. We can't lose it, but we can forget it. We can forget it very quickly. If we're not careful, we can become so guilt-ridden, we forget about the grace supposed to fill our lives. Amen? That Max says guilt is God's idea, though, that God uses it in the way highway, highway engineers use rumble strips. You know, those little things along the side of the highway that I love. I'm in the car when Susan and Hannah are in the car. I like going over there and hanging out there for a while and just really bothers everybody in the car, so I'll just do that on purpose. Nobody else does that, right? Never. It's made there so that you will not go off the highway, right? If you're falling asleep at the rumble strip, it'll wake you up. When you swerve off track, you can come back and get back in the right place. Guilt does the same. Guilt alerts us to the discrepancies between what we are and what God desires for us to be. 
It stirs repentance and renewal. It makes us want to change. It, it helps us. In appropriate doses, guilt is a blessing because it keeps us aware. In unmonitored dosages, however, guilt is an unbearable burden. The guilt becomes the thing, and it so weighs us down, we can't do anything else. We can't carry it. We weren't made to carry guilt for long periods of time, but God can. God can take that guilt and then off of our shoulders once we've repented of it and turned around and are trying to do something different, then God takes that away from us. In Leviticus 16, 21-22, we see on the Day of Atonement, the Hebrew people once a year were given a chance to watch their guilt being taken away physically. The priest would select two goats. The first goat was sacrificed. Sorry, you're done. The second goat was presented by the priest. And he placed his hands on the head of the goat and he put all of the sins of the community on the goat. We are cheaters, Lord. We are liars. We envy our friend's success. We covet our neighbor's spouse. We ignore the poor, worship our idols. We engage in evil acts. And they would just keep pouring on everything from the community. Until all was confessed, people would watch. Then the guide led the animal away. And the pair grew smaller and smaller off in the distance over the horizon. And people waited until the man would appear empty-handed. And the object lesson was very clear. That God does not want guilt among God's people. So placing the sins upon the scapegoat where that term comes from and sending it off into the wilderness was a way the Hebrews would visualize removing guilt from the community. You see, God uses the sinless to carry away the sins of the guilty. Jesus Christ in Hebrew 9, we are told, came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he was offered once to bear the sins of many. If you are in Christ, your sin is gone. It was last seen on the back of your sin bearer as he headed out into the desert somewhere. When Jesus cried on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember, it's Psalm 22. He's quoting scripture. He's not really saying that for himself. He's saying that for all the community to remember. And in that moment, he is separated from God and bearing the weight of the sins of the world. And for a split second, he has been forsaken as he bears the brunt of all of those things. And he entered the wilderness of sin on your behalf. But unlike the sin-bearing goat, Jesus returned sin-free. His resurrection power gives us the power over sin. Amen? that that kind of power comes from His resurrection, not just His death on a cross, but because He was resurrected for our sakes and returned sinless and free to give us new life. And because of that, we have to open ourselves up to the idea of a guilt-free you. The guilt's not going to help you to be able to do anything at that level. This might be difficult. You've dragged around your past for so long and it's a sub part of who you are that you carry it like it's luggage from every place that you go. 
You can't imagine yourself without it. But God can. God can imagine that you being freed from that heavy, heavy, chained burden. Because as the song said, He is a chain breaker. You see, Jesus did His part. He is the chain breaker. But now we have to do ours, and Max says that comes in three ways. He says, first of all, give God your guilt. Say, give God your guilt. Pray the pocket prayer. We've been talking about all week in class and other places. The fact is that there's much more than just saying the prayer straight out. Add things to the prayer as they come up. If it's heal me, then what does it heal me from? If it's forgive me, what does it forgive me from? You are good. How are you good? Thank you. How do you thank God? Let's see. So, Father, you are good. I need help. Heal me. Forgive me. Place your guilt on the back of the sin bearer. Give it to Jesus with this request. Will you take this away from me? Will you take this away from me? I don't want to carry it anymore. Second, be concrete in your confession. What does that mean? Go into as much detail as you can. Healing happens when the wound is exposed to the atmosphere of grace, Max says. I love that. Healing happens when the wound is exposed to the atmosphere of grace. Which means you've got to do it. You've got to expose that wound. Exactly what is it you need forgiveness for? For being a bad person. That is not concrete, nor is it detail. That's not good enough. I'm a bad person. That is not going to help you in any way whatsoever to deal with your confession. It's too general. Maybe instead, for losing patience with your family. That's, you know, that's very concrete. Or maybe you talked about somebody behind their back in horrible ways. That's concrete. That you can confess. That you can pray for. You see, confession requires you to actually be honest. You're not pretending before God. That's not going to happen in the first place. But if you pretend to pretend before God, then God can't hear you. Because confession doesn't work that way. Confession comes from a heart that is open. From a heart that's willing to say, you know what? Forgive me. Confession, you see, is not a punishment for sin. It's an isolation of sin. So it can, be, it can be extracted. You know, very often they try to isolate cancer and they try to get it all and then be able to take it all out at the same time. Because if you leave any cancer cells behind, what's going to happen? They're going to grow. Confession helps to isolate the sin in our life and allow then God to be able to extract it out because we finally said really honestly what it is we're confessing which is hard. Because treatment usually is hard. In order to get well, it sometimes requires some hard steps. And then third, he says, be firm in this prayer. Tell guilt where it can get off the bus. Tell exactly where it's time. Speak to it in the name of Jesus. I left you at the foot of the cross, you evil spirit. Stay there. Tell guilt to get off. I'm done. I don't want to live like this anymore. It's time for you to get off the bus. And for heaven's sake, stop tormenting yourself. 
Jesus is strong enough to carry your sin. Did He not say He would do so? Psalm 103, 12-14 talks about God and God has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to His children, tender and compassionate to those who fear Him, for He knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. We live in a guilt-laden world. But there's a population of people who have discovered the grace of God. And grace has no place for guilt. Amen? They don't drink their guilt away. They don't work it away. They don't chase it away. We give it away. We give it to God who can take all that guilt upon God's shoulders and be able to bear it when we cannot. God wants you to be among those people who really honestly look into our faith as being something that we continue to do all the time and be relieved of that guilt. You see, the time has come for a clean start. It's a fresh slate. You can't have a clean start or a fresh slate or a clean whiteboard if you're not willing to actually erase it. I mean erase it. You ever done that before and you see the faint traces of what was on there before? I mean, this is a full clean, folks. This is taking everything off of it and not leaving anything on it. God does not see the marks of the past. All those tattoos that cover us up and all the regrets and the things, God doesn't see any of those. Instead, it says in Isaiah 49:16, it says, See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. See, God has written our names where, where God can see them. And that's all that's important. And Christ's hands were pierced and given in love for us with our name on His heart. All of us. For all time. Heal me. Forgive me. Say a pocket prayer with me. It's up here on the board. Close your eyes if you can try try to do it without it. Do your best, do your best. If you don't rely on your eyes, you'll actually start to internalize it more and more. By the time we did it three times on Wednesday night, everybody had it down. Here we go. Father, you are good. Right? Right? I need help. Then heal me. Forgive me. Then what? Thank you. In Jesus' name. Oh, wow. No. What is it? They need help. Then, thank you. Then, in Jesus' name, amen. Try it again. One more time. From the top. Father, you are good. What? I need help. Heal me. Forgive me. Then what? They need help. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you do it more and more, it won't seem like you're trying to figure it out as you go. It'll just naturally come off your tongue and out of your heart. Let this prayer, take the prayer challenge four weeks. Four minutes equals forever change. Amen.
At this table, when we come together, this isn't just a, a moment of remembrance of a meal. It is a theological statement. It's a theological statement, and the fact is that what Jesus was doing in that meal was not just telling them the fact that the bread would become something else and the, and the wine would become something else. He was trying to explain to them in the simplest of terms what it really meant. He gave thanks to his Father, always gave thanks first in prayer. He broke the bread. He gave it to the disciples and he said the things that they had never heard before. This is my body, which is given for you. I'm going to the cross. My body will be broken. It's being broken for you, not because physically it needs to be broken, but because spiritually I have something I need to do. And when the supper was over, the fourth cup of the meal, the Passover meal, is the cup of redemption. And there's no mistake that that would be the cup that would be lifted up. The symbolism is heavy. This blood will be poured out for each one of you for the forgiveness of sins. These are the two things that he asks us to remember every time that we take this meal. To remember that his body was broken and given for us and his blood was shed for us and poured out and spilled to give us new life. Heal me. Forgive me. That's what he gave to us. Let those come forward to serve as we pray over the meal. Gracious God, as this bread and this juice are given to us, we remember your great love, your great gift of sacrifice for each one of us. Lord, help us to live into that. Heal us from the things that trouble us the most physically and emotionally. Forgive us for the things that we need to be forgiven for even the ones we're afraid to tell you or to speak out loud. Lord, just pour into these things and pour into us this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the people of God said together, forward to receive this morning. He is the chain breaker. He is the guilt taker. Give him all that you have to give to him this morning. Let us come and receive.
You 
Reject the evil powers of this world and repent of your sin. If you do, say, I do. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and put your whole trust in His grace? Do you promise, according to the grace given to you, to live as a Christian life and become a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you profess the Scriptures as found in the Old and New Testaments? And in ministry with Christians everywhere, do you promise to participate in Good Shepherd United Methodist Church with your prayers, your presence, your financial gifts, your service, and your witness? If you will, say, I will. We welcome you. We're glad that you're all here. Please make sure to greet them with me at the, at, at the door at the end and make them feel welcome in every way possible. We receive this benediction as we all go out together. Heal me. Forgive me. Heal me. Forgive me. Jesus stands still when we utter these words. Speak them to Him, and He will take you, and He will help you, and He will heal you gradually, instantly, or ultimately, and He will forgive you instantly. Bring your guilt to Him. Let Him be the chain breaker in your life. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Come on here.